Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today's podcast is presented by EPRA the European Public Real Estate Association. Facing global megatrends like green transition and aging population, how will listed real estate contribute to a sustainable future and financial security for Europe? The new EU Confidential podcast gets started right after this. Today's episode is presented by the European Commission. Investing in youth is a priority for this European Commission. The European education area we are building is already creating new opportunities for all young people. More work is ahead. Discussions at the second European Education Summit, hosted by Commissioner Navracic in Brussels this week, have provided valuable input. What will synthetic biology stand for? Restoring our livers and our eyes with miracle regeneration of the tissues like some fantastic hangover cure? Or will it bring terrifying limbless chickens to our table? Welcome to the new EU Confidential podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor. And what you just heard was Boris Johnson speaking to the UN General Assembly in New York earlier this week. Politico sent a whole team to cover the event, including our own Reem Montas. Hi, Reem. Bonjour. And we also have uh, Matt Karnichnik in Vienna with us this week. Hi, Matt. Grüß Gott. God, so you can do it properly. And back with us this week is Annabel Dixon in London. Hi, Annabel. Hello. So there's a lot to talk about in the UK and we'll get to all of that drama in a moment. But before we do that and we hear from our podcast panel, there's some breaking news here in Brussels, which we wanted to get into the podcast this week uh, just before we finalise recording. So I uh, wanted to bring in a couple of my colleagues, Lily Beyer and Anka Gurzu. Hi, Lily. Hello. Hi, Anka. Hello. And we're here to talk about the fact that Ursula von der Leyen, the Commission president-elect, has suffered a major setback in that two of her nominees, her commissioners, seem to have been taken out of the game. Uh, Lily, maybe you just summarise what happened today. So the Parliament's Legal Affairs Committee met and the committee took two separate votes, one on the Romanian candidate, Vana Plum, and the other on the Hungarian candidate, Laszlo Trocani, and both of them were formally blocked uh, from going forward. Now, this is a recommendation from the committee, but it has put the incoming Commission President, Ursula von der Leyen in a very awkward position. Right, so Rovana Plum was nominated to be Transport Commissioner and Torchani was going to be the Enlargement and Neighbourhood Commissioner. Anka, what is the reaction on the Romanian side to the decision on Rovana Plum? We have the Romanian President Klaus Johannes who made a statement shortly after asking uh, for consultations with him and the European Parliament so that the Prime Minister can come forward with another better qualified candidate, the issue with uh, Rovana Plumb was that there were concerns over two loans that she has taken out worth almost 1 million uh, euros that she has not declared in her uh, financial declaration that appeared before MEPs. And there's also within the Romanian 
ruling class, if you like, the the president and the and the ruling party, which include Ravana Plume, they're they're kind of at odds a lot, right? Yes, that's definitely the problem. So the problem is is that Ravana Plume is a member of the Socialists and Democrats, while uh, the uh, president of Romania, he's uh, a member of an opposition group in uh, Romania, which is equivalent to the EPP here. And they're really uh, at loggerheads. There's a, a huge political battle between the two uh, groups in Romania. So the, the president has not been happy from the start with her nomination. Right. And we should also just summarize quickly what the concerns were. In both cases, this committee was looking at potential conflicts of interest. And one of the strange things for us talking here this afternoon is that even though the parliament, in a sense, is claiming the moral high ground here, they actually are not being very transparent about this. We don't actually know in detail, or if we know, we know through kind of unofficial channels. Lily, but as far as we can tell, what are the concerns about the Hungarian uh, candidate? It appears that the concerns centre around his relationship with a law firm which he founded in 1991, and uh, in which it appears that until 2018, he owned some kind of stake. Now, he disputes the parliament's interpretation of his legal relationship with this entity. But um, at the core of the issue is really the fact that this uh, law firm has done a lot of business over the years of the Hungarian government. And what Trochani's critics claim is that um, there was a potential conflict of interest in that he was serving as Hungary's justice minister from 2014 until recently this year, uh, while the firm which bears his name, Nagy Strochanyi, was doing business with the government and representing the government on cases. Okay, thanks, Lily. Thanks, Anka. And we'll keep following the story on our website, so be sure to keep an eye on politico.eu for all the latest. But for now, let's get back to the podcast quartet. Now, Reem, you were travelling with Emmanuel Macron to the UN General Assembly earlier this week. You had some great behind-the-scenes access. So just give us a flavour of what that was like. How was it being inside the Macron whirlwind? Well, it's as dynamic as you imagine it to be. You know, on the flight to New York, he held not one but two staff meetings. And he spoke to us, we were about four journalists on the plane, for an hour. But, you know, above all, Macron... He was clearly on a mission during this UNGA, just like he was at the G7. He was intent on making it newsmaking and more than just a series of, you know, long, boring speeches that, let's face it, no one really listens to. So he did a lot of good old hallway backdoor diplomacy. He tried to get a breakthrough on the Iranian crisis. And I even caught him in a hallway at one point after he'd done a pull aside, his second, with uh, Trump uh, on Iran. And I caught him in the hallway and asked him, you know, how's it going? How's, how's your diplomacy going on Iran? And he just shot me a look and said, that's all I'm doing right now. I'm working on this. Well, give us a flavor of what he's trying to achieve and how he's trying to achieve it. So what he was trying to do is to build on the three months long diplomacy uh, he and his diplomats have been trying to to carry out to de-escalate the Iranian crisis and in the end uh, at the UNGA sort of bring about a contact between the US uh, and Iran. They weren't necessarily fixated on that happening at the UNGA, but they had a preference for it because logistically everyone was there. And the next time they have an opportunity to all be physically in the same place, 
visit the UNGA in a year. Um, and we came very, very close to a breakthrough on Tuesday, but Iran um, held out. But for two days, Macron really put in all of his energy and he saw Trump not once, but three times and Rouhani twice. And the French foreign minister saw the Iranian foreign minister twice. So there was a lot of walking back and forth between the different hotels the leaders were working out of. Macron even delayed his departure from New York on Tuesday for a few hours to give his attempt a little bit more time. In the end, it wasn't in the cards. And it also wasn't just France. The E3, so France, the UK and Germany, put out a joint communique on Monday that was really noteworthy. Uh, They said it was clear to them that Iran bears responsibility for the September 14th attacks on oil facilities in Saudi. And I thought that was really forceful and unusual. So I'm I'm wondering, Matt, what made Germany want to come out so strongly for that? Well, I think the Germans acknowledge that, you know, the reality here, which is that Iran is is the aggressor and you can only kind of stay silent for so long, right? I mean, you know, Germany generally has... been very reluctant to be too forceful here. And I think that was probably also the pressure from the U.S. side to say, you know, look, you, you need to really stand up here and, and, and back us on this. And also uh, with Saudi Arabia, which is, you know, an important partner for Germany. So I, I think it was more that than anything. I mean, you know, the Germans often try to kind of stay in the background on these things and not, not offend anybody but it was so clear in this case that Iran was behind this that I, I, I think that uh, they convinced the Germans that they that they had to uh, to go along with this you know that said I, I don't know what what difference it'll make in the end I mean it, it's it's not like Iran is is willing to uh, change course and I think that's the main problem in in these negotiations is that it's not really clear where they're going or what what the pressure points are. Yeah, I mean, the the pressure point question is central. And I've been trying to get sort of the French to sort of respond on that. Um, And they say, you know, it's part of a negotiating whole, because what they're trying to do is to preserve the nuclear deal, but also convince, or in some way, kind of force Iran uh, to open up the conversation and start negotiating on, you know, its regional role, its ballistics uh, missile program. Uh, So, you know, we'll see if they actually get there. Yeah, if I could just jump in here. We're so much to get through that we will jump ahead now and go to Austria where you are, Matt. Election coming up there on Sunday. How is it looking and why should the rest of the world or, or at least Europe take an interest? Well, the way it's looking is that Sebastian Kurz is most likely to win the election, or his party's expected to come first by a fairly wide margin. They're polling now at around 35%. And if you remember, a few months back, there was this scandal involving this video where the then leader of the Freedom Party, which is the far-right party in Austria, was caught trying to basically solicit illegal donations from a woman he thought to be the niece of a a Russian oligarch. The the video kind of exploded in the uh, Austrian media in May and and forced the collapse of the government. So now it looks like Kurz's party, the the People's Party, will will win, as I said. And, And the real question is what coalition emerges from that, despite the scandal around this video, uh, the the Freedom Party is still doing fairly well. They're about 20% in the polls, uh, neck and neck with the the Social 
Democrats here. So it really isn't clear what kind of coalition could emerge. And that really is the importance, I think, for uh, Europe is is to see whether Kurz decides to risk really another coalition with the far right, with which his party is more ideologically in sync, or to embrace another grand coalition with the Social Democrats, which definitely would not be his, his first choice, but it's something that has historically been um, something that most voters in Austria have, have preferred. And then the third option would be a three-way coalition with the Greens and the, the Liberal Party here, which is called the NEOs, which would be more difficult to bring about because they're three partners. But it's the kind of thing that we've seen a lot more of in Germany, for example, on a regional basis. And, and that looks like that might be the way things are headed. Okay, well, we'll watch that result uh, with interest. We'll have full coverage uh, on the website. I'm going to jump ahead now to uh, something happening here in Brussels before we get to the big Brexit debate and uh, also our interview of the week. The big news really here in Brussels this week has been a couple of court rulings, EU general court decisions on Starbucks and Fiat. These are both big tax cases. They've been central to um, what this European Commission has been trying to do on tax, particularly how multinationals pay tax. And they've been central to the agenda of Margrethe Vestager, the uh, competition commissioner who's set to take on an even bigger job in the next commission. And I had a chat with our senior policy editor, Christian Oliver, all about that. So let's have a quick listen to that now. There were two big tax cases, right, Christian? Um, Maybe you could just explain uh, what they were about and what the court ruled. Sure. Well, we've had a big moment in the EU's tax justice campaign that has been going on for several years now. The big idea here is that the EU's taken a rather imaginative way to try and sort out multinationals not paying their taxes, and they've taken this route of state aid, which is effectively saying all of these letters that countries give to companies to give them special tax arrangements are a form of subsidy. You think of it almost like an industrial subsidy, but they've used it in tax territory. And this was quite a bold, radical idea that they've been trying. The big moment that we've hit this week is that this came to two important appeal cases, which was Starbucks in the Netherlands and Fiat in Luxembourg. Essentially, the Starbucks case was kicked out, Vestaya lost, and Fiat, she won. So it was a mixed result for Vexus Together this week. Okay, and was one of these cases more important than the other? I mean, should we see this as a a kind of score draw or was it ultimately a defeat? I think we should look at the big picture that we saw over both of them, which is that she managed to stamp down the really big idea, she's allowed to do this. She can treat the tax problem as a state aid problem. That's okay. She also had some technicalities that lots of the lawyers said she would never win, and she won those. She established lots of big points of law. The thing she's going to be worried about is that she keeps losing all these state aid cases on technicalities. And there's a lot, not just in the tax section, but something's going wrong with state aid policy in the EU at the moment. And it's one of the most important policies that they, or one of the most important weapons that the EU has available to it. So she's going to be worried and she's going to be particularly worried about what that means for the really big decision, which was against Apple, where Ireland was told to claim back of eventually 14.3 billion euros from Apple for underpaid taxes. So she's going to be worried about that. 
Okay, and she's going to take on like an even bigger role in the next commission if everything goes smoothly in terms of confirmation. So she keeps the competition portfolio, but she also uh, adds in other... Well, the, the overall overarching thing is digital and tech. So how is that going to affect this? Are these tax arrangements particularly prevalent among, among big tech companies, for example? Is it all going to feed into one big picture? It will, and I think Apple is the classic example of that. We just have to see how well the whole regime can stick together as I say she's got the big idea but it's terrible for her legacy and it's bad for the enforceability of this if all of the policies these state aid cases start to crumble on the on the details and you've got to remember this isn't yeah, tech's, tech's important, but it's everything. I mean, state aid policy is what you use to keep the European banking sector in check. It's what you use to change the economies of, say, old traditional economies like Poland, how they run their ports and their coal sector. State aid is like everything in many ways to the, the real power that the EU has to sort of put some pressure on member countries. If that unravels on her watch, that's bad news universally. That was Christian Oliver, our senior policy editor. And now, as promised, it's time to get to the UK and Brexit. Uh, Boris Johnson, as we heard, was at the United Nations General Assembly this week. And on the same day, the Supreme Court in the UK struck down his attempt to suspend Parliament in the lead up to Brexit Day, which is currently scheduled for October 31st. Of course, the Supreme Court uh, said that his decision to prorogue or advise the Queen to prorogue Parliament was unlawful. Animal, uh, extraordinary scenes. Um, It's so hard to keep up in the UK. I was uh, laughing the other day because they had listed on the European Parliament uh, site, they were talking about Guy Verhofstadt, the Brexit point man here, giving a statement and it said, in response to the recent event. And I think they've given up trying to describe what the recent event is because they know it's going to change every few hours. So let's start where where you started the week at the Labour Party conference. How did that go? So... While half the press corps was at the UN, the other half of the British press corps was at the um, Labour Party conference in Brighton. And then the Supreme Court ruled and we all had to hop on our trains back to London where the action suddenly transferred. And I, I think that was quite a relief for Jeremy Corbyn because this opposition party, which is still riven with these divisions over what to do with their Brexit policy. So you've got Jeremy Corbyn very much doesn't want to commit to a sort of unambiguously remain position, yet lots of his members and some of his shadow cabinet do. And suddenly, actually, he had this kind of great um, result from the Supreme Court and, and the attention completely switched away and focused back to the Prime Minister and this extraordinary, unprecedented ruling that he'd unlawfully suspended Parliament for five weeks. Yeah, incredible. Guys, do you want to jump in? Any questions for Annabelle? Help us try and make sense of this. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Apart from what the hell is going on. What does it mean for Brexit? Is the always always the question. Well this is the yeah, I mean this is the question. Does it does it change the fundamental you know, does it change any of the fundamentals on Brexit? Are we more or less likely to to have a no deal? you know, how how does it look like it's going to play out today? Yeah, so actually, bizarrely, even though it was this hugely unprecedented ruling, it changes very little. Britain's still due to leave on October the 31st. Boris Johnson still needs to get a deal. MPs have passed this law, which forces the Prime Minister to ask for an extension. So 
actually that the sort of Brexit calculation it is still the same. And he still has this very divided parliament. I think what's very interesting, actually, and almost more significant has been his reaction to the ruling. So he was summoned back and was in the House of Commons on Wednesday night. And rather than being, than being contrite, he I mean, he absolutely sort of doubled down. He said he thought the judges were wrong and he gave this extraordinary statement sort of goading Labour MPs to vote no confidence in him. And proceedings in the House of Commons turns into this sort of bar brawl. I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary. I've never seen anything like it in the House of Commons before. I mean, it's always quite rowdy, but, but the sort of anger and vitriol from the opposition benches and the sort of reaction from the government benches, which was sort of very unapologetic, was really quite something to behold. What I'd be really interested in to know, how do the Europeans see this? Do, do they think that these scenes in the House of Commons make it less likely that they think Boris Johnson will be able to get a deal if they do make concessions? Yeah, I would just say briefly from the from the Brussels side, I think what our reporters are picking up is partly obviously some question marks over whether even if they managed to agree some deal with Boris Johnson, whether he would be able to get it through Parliament. But I think ultimately the EU position hasn't changed very much. Um, if they can do a deal with Boris Johnson, they will do it, but it can't be very different from the deal that's on the table already. Maybe they could call it a Boris deal and suddenly that would make it better. But otherwise, it's going to be a repackaged version of pretty much the deal that's on the table. Uh, on the flip side, you know, if we say that, you know, bluffing is not just something that's done on the on the British side, I do think uh, also what remains the same is if the if Britain asks for an extension, it will be granted. Whatever people may say about Britain needing to give additional rationale or whatever, they do not want a no-deal Brexit on November the 1st. So I think that will happen. So, uh, but let's go back to Brighton, Annabelle, and um, our main feature interview, which is from a political London playbook event when our own Jack Blanchard sat down with Keir Starmer just set that up for us. So Jack Blanchard sat down with Keir Starmer, who's the, the party's shadow Brexit secretary. And this was just moments after a dramatic vote in the conference hall where Jeremy Corbyn had seen off this attempt by grassroots members and shadow cabinet members like Starmer to force him to back an unambiguously pro-Remain position. But you know, he demonstrated he still has a lot of support in the party from other allies, particularly the unions, meaning that his Brexit strategy remains to negotiate his own deal and put it to the, the people in a referendum. There are a few quick things to explain with the interview you're about to hear. Keir Starmer has been a member of parliament since 2015 and shadow Brexit secretary since 2016. He's been one of the people who's been pushing for this meaningful vote. He's definitely been very influential in shifting Jeremy Corbyn's position. Before that, he was the director of public prosecutions, which you'll hear him talk about in the interview. That's the most senior public prosecutor in England and Wales. And there's some very interesting stuff. You know, he, he was very keen, actually, and, and volunteered himself to go into a bit of his backstory, you know, like the fact that he was named Keir um, after Keir Hardy, who was the first British Labour leader, so we'll hear from Jack and Keir Starmer in a second. This is just highlights of what was an hour-long conversation. But first, we have a quick message from this week's sponsor. A message from the European Commission. Building a better Europe means empowering young people. That is why the European Commission is investing in their education and creating new opportunities for them to shape society. 
the foundations of a true European education area have been laid, strengthening excellence and inclusion, building a future in which learning abroad will become standard for young people. European universities are being developed, a game-changer for students and Europe's higher education landscape. New initiatives like the European Solidarity Corps and Discover EU are enabling young people to bring positive change to communities and experience what it feels like to be European. And to keep up Europe's commitment to youth, the Commission is seeking to double funding for the iconic Erasmus programme. These are excellent achievements to build on. Discussions at the second European Education Summit, hosted by Commissioner Navracic in Brussels this week, have provided valuable input for our work going forward. So now let's hear from Keir Starmer, just moments after the dramatic vote in the conference hall. We had a vote, and the vote went the way it did. I mean, I'm, I've said for some time, over and over again, that I would campaign for Remain, so obviously... Um, I'm disappointed by the results, but we had a vote. That's what the Labour Party does. And sometimes we obscure the progress we've made um, by getting too hung up on this particular vote. Last year at conference, I put a line in my speech that said... <laughs> at the last minute. Uh, at the la- <laughs> it went in late. But, but it was to say um, nobody's ruling out the option of remain. And so 12 months ago... Um, that's where we were. Now we're in a place where, whether it's in this government or the next government, the Labour Party is pledged to a referendum. In that referendum, Remain is going to be an option, and the only other option is going to be a deal that is a decent enough deal for us to actually leave on that could be negotiated with the EU. Now, you know, would I have liked us to have gone a bit further and um, won that vote today? Of course I would. But I don't want to take away from the fact that that is quite considerable movement over the course of... 12 months. You said in your speech, if you want to fight for Remain, vote Labour. But it doesn't look like your party leader Ignacio agrees with that message, does it? Well, what, he, what the NEC motion said is that we'll have a special conference for the members to decide. I mean, I've got a pretty clear idea, I think, of where the members are on this. Um, and therefore, I think it's very likely that the members will want us to campaign for Remain. I mean, we campaigned for Remain in 2016. We are currently campaigning for Remain against any Tory outcome. And I think it, it seems to me obvious where the membership is on this. What do you think about the idea of a Labour Prime Minister sort of sitting like a neutral referee over that process while it plays out? I've got mixed feelings about that. And, and let me try to be as fair as I can, because, you know, this is... This is you know, Brexit is a very, very difficult issue for the Labour Party, obviously, and it's very easy to say, oh, it's all about confusion. It's not. You know, two-thirds of Labour voters, or three-quarters, voted Remain, but one-third or a quarter voted Leave. Two-thirds of Labour MPs vote, uh, re- represent Leave areas, and one-third represent Remain areas. So, of course, there's a mix. And what, what Jeremy's trying to achieve, um, in fairness, is to say, given the division across the country somebody's got to be prepared to say, we'll have a referendum to, to try to find a way forward, and I'll stay above that and faithfully implement um, the outcome. But it, it leads you open to some pretty obvious attacks. It does. I've um, pointed some of those out. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I guess Keir Starmer doesn't always get his way on everything then. No, I mean, my, I, I personally think it's better to say uh, campaign to remain, and that's what I have said, because I think it's better to 
be clear that that's, you know, I don't think there is a deal that's going to be as good as the deal that we've got. But I, 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 in fairness, I mean, it's very easy to just take a side in this. I can see the concept of saying somebody needs to sit above this. But what message will it send to the people when you're knocking on the doorsteps that you can't say how Labour's going to campaign in this coming referendum and that even when you can, you might find that your party leader doesn't say how he's going to vote? How about well, message? I, I think most people will realise that the Labour Party membership is so overwhelmingly in favour of Remain that it's obvious where this is going to end up. Mm-hmm. You were one of the key people in Parliament who's actually created the blockade with your meaningful vote yeah. idea. Um, but have there been moments when it looked like this might all end in no deal when you started to wonder, should I, have ever, should I have gone down that road? Would it have been better just to let this deal go through? No. Obviously, I and um, lots of other Labour Party uh, members and supported all um, campaigned for Remain in 2016. And, you know, were pretty devastated by the result. And to be honest, the morning after, I actually just sat, sat with my little boy and my little girl. They're now 8 and 11. They were three years younger at the time. And I wasn't thinking about the customs union, you'd be pleased to know. I was just thinking about what sort of world are they going to grow up in. But I felt profoundly, having gone across the country telling people you've got to vote, it's really important, that we had to accept the result and therefore trigger Article 50. My worry was, by saying to the Prime Minister, you can start the negotiations, I felt we had no grip over what came back. And that's why, working in particular with Dominic Grieve, we worked on the idea of a meaningful vote, which was very basic, which said there has to be a check at the end of the exercise to see whether we are prepared to sign it off. If we hadn't got that, then arguably Theresa May could have come back and said, this is the deal, you don't get to um, vote on it, we're leaving on those terms. So it was really important. I never thought, by the way, that Theresa May would actually leave without a deal. When I was Director of Public Prosecutions, she was Home Secretary, and I worked with her for three and a half years. And... um, you know, got lots of differences with her, but I felt that she had a very profound sense of public duty and that she wouldn't do it. And the proof's in the pudding, because when she put her vote up the first time, she'd spent the weeks before saying, it's my deal or no deal. The vote goes down by a massive vote, and if she'd kept to her script, she should have stood up at the dispatch box and said, right, it's no deal. Uh, but she didn't. She got up and said, I'm going to have another go. And then she lost again, and she got up and said, I'm going to have another go. And in the end, she applied for an extension. So I actually never felt that she was going to take us out without a deal. Boris Johnson is a different kettle of fish. You think he'll do it if he can? I I, I think he is um, reckless because he has got into his head that do or die on the 31st of October trumps the national interest and that it's better to keep to that commitment than do what's right with the country. There was another motion on um, effectively phasing out private education that wasn't really backed by the leadership but seems to have gone through. What, What was your view on that? Well, I, my own view is that we need to try and make private education irrelevant um, in the sense that we need the state sector to be so good that nobody feels they need to send their children. Would you ever send your own kids to private school? No, absolutely not. Why not? Nor to private uh, health. Why, why not? Because I fundamentally believe in the state system. I fundamentally believe in it. What if your local schools are no good and you can afford it? I would still send them to state school. And I'd never go down the road of private, uh, private health. My mum was very, very ill all her life. She got stills to leave when she was 11, which meant that she could barely walk for most of her life. Um, she was in a wheelchair. She had crippling arthritis and steroid treatment. And in the end, it meant we spent a lot of time in a high dependency unit with her, and she had to have her limbs cut off. And she would never, ever, ever go to a private, school, a private health. It's just fundamental in our family. We'd never do it. Miss that?
part of the reason you got into politics or had an idea of getting into politics? It sounds quite, quite a formative It was formative experience. and difficult, really difficult, because she had this very aggressive illness and, you know, was extremely courageous about it, but also completely modest. If you asked her how she was, she would always say, I'm fine, how are you? It was an incredibly powerful thing. She sadly passed away three weeks before I was elected into Parliament. But it was very, very profound. And, and that, I remember, in a high-dependency unit, near death, where they weren't sure they had the facilities for her, and she held my arm and she said, you won't let your dad go private, will you? <laughs> that was really interesting. Even then, her only concern was, you won't let your dad go private. And, of course, they named you Kia, which sort of suggests that there was... Uh, some yeah, there was. I don't think I can claim any... Um, no, but it means you, uh, you must have grown up in a, quite a political household to have a name like that, I would guess. Yes. I mean, my dad was a toolmaker, so he worked in a factory all his life. And that was before... Man- I mean, manufacturing's gone through a revival. This was when it's in the doldrums, mm-hmm. and it was tough. Um, and he, he worked eight in the morning till five in the evening. He came home for his tea went back to work at 6 till 10 in the factory every day. Every wow. My mum was a nurse, but then became too ill to actually work. So it was, you know, it was political in that sense. Mm. And, you know, there were many times when the electricity and the, uh, and the uh, telephone bill didn't get paid. So I think people will be surprised by that. Do you get frustrated at sometimes being cast as sort of North London elite? It is frustrating. I mean, the only work environment I knew till I left home was a factory floor. I'd never been in an office. I'd never been in any working environment other than a factory floor. That's just the way it was. And I worked on the factory floor with my dad for six months before I went to university. And I think because I was DPP, etc., people think, well, your dad, your dad was obviously a judge, your mum was probably this, that and the other, which is completely wrong. What, what would you have liked to have got your teeth into? You didn't get into politics to do Brexit. You know, it didn't, hadn't been voted upon in 2015. What, would you have, what policy area would you really like what, to be doing if it, all this wasn't going what on? What I really, really wanted to do, and hope one day I might do, <laughs> is to get into the question of how we reform our public services. Because I got really, really frustrated in the criminal justice system watching people go through the criminal justice system and end up in prison when you could trace the likelihood of that back to how well they're doing at school, uh, mental health and health. And so, I mean, there are many reasons people end up in prison. Many, many people um, who get involved in crime get involved in crime as a result of being expelled from secondary school. And those who have been expelled from secondary school have usually been in trouble at primary school. And the idea that you had the criminal justice system here, you had education there... You had health and mental health there in these silos. I found really frustrating, and I really... And, just one and I, I hope one day I can actually do some of this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've been, a, I've been an MP for four and a half years. It feels like about 45 years. Um, but three years of that, an intense on Brexit. But you're, you're one of the few MPs who actually... The job was basically a step down for you in 2015. You know, it must have been a bit weird going from this hugely important, high-profile role to you know, backbench MP trying to get a foot in the door in the shadow cabinet. It must have been a weird transition, was it? The hardest bit of the transition was the frustration of opposition. I mean, there are other bits. It's a bit weird because in court, it's a simple system but quite good. You have to have evidence if you want to win your case. There are rules, and somebody makes an independent decision. You get to Parliament, and none of that applies. So that's Mm -hmm. a bit of a change. 
But, the, but the, the, the frustration was, as DPP, if there was something wrong in the system, I could do something about it and try to change it. Mm-hmm. In opposition, it's very difficult. In opposition, you're struggling to really, really make a difference. In my first year as an MP, I voted 172 times, and I lost 171 times. Talk I mean, that, that's opposition for you. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's it why used any, to be opposition. Anyone who doesn't think you need a radical, you know, you need a Labour government in power mm-hmm. needs to just get that statistic. Voting 172 times and losing 171 is, is not my idea of massive influence over <laughs> the big decisions in life. Okay. Mm-hmm. Quick fire round. Who's your favourite Tory? I don't, I mean, I've got a lot of respect. I mean, is it Theresa May? No. <laughs> um, I don't think I've got a favourite. Dominic Grieve and I worked together when I was DPP and he was Attorney General, and so I know him pretty well. I think D- David Liddington, I, get on, I wouldn't say he's a friend, but I get on very, you know, respect him um, hugely. But I, I have tried not to be tribal. In other words, there's a lot of Tories that I get on all right with in Parliament, um, and I would say I'm friends with because I don't, I don't particularly take to that tribal way of doing it. I think that if you come into politics later on in life, having done other things, the tribal stuff just doesn't, doesn't work for you, because it's not how other people run their lives. Favourite past Prime Minister? Attlee. Um, can you recommend us a book? What was the last thing you read? Oh, God, some children's book. <laughs> <laughs> OK. Can you recommend us a bottle of wine? Boris, oh. Boris, I asked Boris if he picked something that cost 180 quid. Oh, God, no. Um, <laughs> uh, Vic, my wife, uh, always goes for the Sainsbury's Pinot Grigio. It's about £6.50. Good choice. Uh, the, last, nice as well. the last movie you watched? Oh, God. I can't remember. And the first thing you read in the morning? Your vlog. <laughs> <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. That'll do to me nicely. Keir Starmer, thank you. That's great. Thanks, mate. That's terrific. And that was Keir Starmer talking to Politico's Jack Blanchard. And that's all we have time for in this episode of the new EU Confidential. Annabel, any thoughts just before we go on Starmer's interview? What stood out for you? I think definitely he's one to watch. Jeremy Corbyn's not going to be around forever and he's played a very smart game. He's got a very good backstory. So I, I think he's a name that we're going to hear out hear about for many years to come. OK, well, that is all we have time for. Uh, Reem, get some rest after your trip with Macron and we'll look forward to seeing your piece on behind the scenes with Macron in, uh, in the coming days. Thank you. OK, and Matt, uh, you'll be heading for the States, but I know you'll be keeping an eye on the old homeland, Austria, and the election. Where will we be hearing you from next week? That's right. I'll be touring the US next week to talk about Germany in various places and we'll be in Salt Lake City. All right, sounds good. I look forward to a postcard from Salt Lake City. Um, And I'm sure, I don't know if tickets are still available for Matt's uh, Germany tour, but I'm I'm sure they'll be snapped up very quickly. We're uh, always happy to hear your feedback. You can reach us via email at podcast at politico.eu or you can find us all on social media. Thanks to the Politico events team for their help and to producer Christina Gonzalez. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks for listening.